podcast name play nobody my name is steven godfrey at 38 godfrey instagram at 38 godfrey twitter at banner society on those same social media platforms go visit us at banner society subscribe to the read option newsletter happy post christmas post holidays pre-new year's uh you're probably exhausted you're probably feeling a little gross you probably have somewhere to drive you're probably just over all of it um i know that feeling believe me because as I record this, it is a good solid 10-ish days in advance, but as I am somewhere out there in the world right now, I'm probably a little burnt out on relatives. In fact, I know I am because I can see the future. I know you are too. If you're driving back home, if you're driving to make the rounds after Christmas, I love that move, by the way. Um, that's very slick. i got to figure out how to do that because as as you hear this, I am somewhere on Interstate 20 in America going from one in-law to another um this is part two of the hashtag ask papn it's myself it's bud it's richard this is just kind of you know a little thank you a little land yap as they say in louisiana kind of push you guys through the holidays uh get you back home or get you to whatever holiday event you need to go to we will be back after the playoff myself and ryan nanny we're gonna uh recap the two playoff games and we will have more news in the coming weeks as we continue uh with papn as it hits the off season if you know anything about papn you've been listening for a long time the off-season, baby, that's our in-season because there is no such thing as minutia. It's all minutia. We eat the whole damn hog. We love you very much. As always, thank you for supporting PAPN. Thank you for supporting Banner Society. My name is Stephen Godfrey. This is hashtag AskPAPN. I will see you guys after the playoff. Gentlemen, hashtag AskPAPN continues on. Bit of an existential question, if you're ready. At S. Shannon 8771 asks, If you were Pac-12 commissioner, what would you do differently? I would ask you guys to limit your answers to under 15 minutes apiece. <laughs> there is a lot to do differently. Move the whole conference east of the Mississippi? Whoa. Um, okay. Let's start small. Uh, the bullshit scheduling that was identified by, uh, by John Wilner. That would be one where you're putting your best teams in positions to lose on like Friday night road games. Can't do that shit. That's that's definitely one. Um, I think the disproportionate emphasis on this. I got to be careful how I say this. There's a value to Olympic sports, okay? But this idea that Olympic sports is not deserving of the coverage it's not really about the network but they, they put a lot of time and attention into that and i think what's happening is that i, I do believe the regression of football hurts the all of the products that the pac-12 offers right because football if football's paying for everything when football's yes. not as good you're denting yeah. everything and everybody particularly when you have bigger athletic departments than an SEC team that may have, you know, 16 sports or what have you, Pac-12 sport got or Pac-12 team got 29. Um there uh, there's some obvious ones that we haven't talked about, the network, the network location, the conference office location which is the same net location as the network. Um the lack of money that goes out to the individual schools as partners specifically because of the amount of overhead involved um, running and operating your own network. Um, I'm finally coming around to agreeing that it was a disastrous idea. For years, I wanted to be the super progressive thinker and, and, and tout the fact that they were holding on to all of their inventory, all of their IP, if you will. But, you know, guys, like, it's great that you own the Pac-12 network, 
it ended up costing you all the carriage issues with DirecTV and various other places. And I mean, like, to hell with the DirecTV debate, y'all. Like, most of us have, like, YouTube TV or something like that. Like, we still can't get the damn thing, right? They're about to be the, the dude with a bunch of Beanie Babies. Like, like you know, they, they kind of missed the window. <laughs> yeah. Well, Bud, Bud makes the point. is, is o- Owning Pac-12 inventory, it means owning a lot of nothing. The iota of hope is the next media cycle. Yes. Right steel yes. cycle. If, I think what I would do right now if I was inheriting the – I think Shannon's question was maybe like if you go back in time to when Larry Scott came in, what would you do differently, which is kind of the direction I was going. I think if I inherit the Pac-12 tomorrow, what I do is they've got a hell of a lease in downtown San Francisco, and I don't know how you get out of it. But you work your way towards lowering the the initial overhead of the conference, and then from there you start trying to figure out new ways to monetize the IP that you have and the platform that you have and just be the weird one. Um, and then in the, I would say after that, you've got to focus on bolstering your power programs in football above all else. Like you've got to figure out ways you can do that by hook or by crook, which is the exact thing that you shouldn't do in like the SEC or the Big Ten. But we're in a completely different scenario, completely different landscape. Um, you got to go back and play nice with the partners. Like ESPN and Fox haven't really lost a step in their power and influence, but I don't think that you're – I think the way they handle the network strain the relationship to a degree with those guys too. So I'm not saying you give one of them the network, but also if you're the Pac-12, like why not go aggressively with Comcast? NBC. Because NBC has the Olympics. NBC has the Olympic connection that you could create something really, really cool. NBC has the Olympic channel. Like there Mm -hmm. are ways that you could parlay your interests with NBC, giving NBC, a, let's call it an 8 o'clock start time game every week, um, Eastern time start time game, uh, and also you could parlay NBC's obvious vested interest in the Olympics to your obvious vested interest in, in, in Olympics. I know the coast thing is going to be weird because NBC is based up here, but business. I think you got to maybe do the opposite of what Bud and I always say about the mid-level SEC teams that are just trying to survive. I think you go out and you take maybe some of, maybe not your premier brands, but some of them, you schedule them with interesting games, either at neutrals or one-and-ones with Big Ten and SEC opponents, and then you pair that with a better, I would say like Richard's saying with NBC, a more isolated, sort of a dedicated platform for your product. Um but you wrote about this, though. There is a little bit of a regression going on with the talent out west. It's not as good as it used to be. So this this may all be a moot point. The football just may never get back. Yeah, if you could do something about the uh, the housing crisis out, out, out there in Cali as far as the, the lack of, of affordable housing, also the taxes. Like maybe you could lobby the California state legislature to stop, you know, raising taxes constantly. Um, that that you know, that's driving families out, out of Cali, and, and some of them aren't stopping in, in Vegas and and Phoenix. Some of them are just going straight on to Texas. Uh, that could help. I, you know, I would actually play eight games, eight conference games. Um, I, I think. Why would that? Happen? Well, because look, a lot of times you, you're you're increasing your chance of a loss, and in the current system we have, it's really not about resume as as it is about record. Resume is sort of more of a tiebreaker. Record matters. Like record, it, it comes first. Resume, it's a tiebreak. You know, if you right. have record, record gets you into the dance. Resume decides who you dance with. Correct. Yeah. And I, I, I would rather them play eight conference games, schedule some more cupcake games, boost those, like stop taking so many L's and get a few more W's, even if they're kind of, you know, 
empty calorie W's. Um, let's jump around a little bit. Um, Bud at UF Mark 79 asks, having seen the effects of the early signing period on first classes and how much harder it is to put together even a decent one, could you see an AD like USC give a coach a vote of confidence, let them haul in a good or decent class, and then ditch them before spring ball? You know, I think maybe if five or six years ago, if we had the ESP, you could have done this. But now I think athletes have, have too much uh, agency about them to let let this like obvious head fake work. Um, there, I mean, I think most of your class would rightfully ask, for uh, releases from their letters of intent, if you pretty clearly like fired the coach, if you know like the third week in February, uh, and, and basically just kept him only to get the recruiting class going on, and I, I think they would win because the NCAA seems to fold when it has a terrible PR situation facing it in terms of of, of transfer stuff. And here it would be fairly obvious. I, I have to think um, some media would get wind of it, like hey, they're doing interviews in February. This is kind of weird. Uh, so you could, in theory, do it. It could really help you. I think if you pulled it off, you could only pull that that switch one time, right? Like, you, you do that one time, and it would hurt your future recruiting, too, I think, because people would be like, yeah, that's cool. You can't trust them. But you could do it one time. Um, that's that's an interesting question. I, I've thought about it a lot. That's why I selected it. But I, I, it's not right to do, and I don't think the NCAA would let you get away with it. Um, do you guys? I mean, you guys cover more NCAA stuff than I do. Do you think that they would they would grant all those waivers with a quickness? No, not until there's some massive kind of overhaul. You, God, you think that they would make I mean, the kids stay? <sighs> I mean, Richard, I, I what we we uh, it ends up being sort of weird case by case. Like, I think that's what would happen is what has already happened with the NCAA, which is we would see some sort of contradiction between isolated, like, like different schools doing basically the same thing. And then you, you would end up with a larger NCAA controversy, which, you know, is how everything resolves itself in the NCAA. Um, Richard, sir. Old dominion at Jimmy S H I O three. With Shane Beamer not getting old Dominion, can you share some information on what coaching sons go through as they try to progress in their own careers? Yeah, um, as a young person, um, I I kind of get there's there's a little bit to unpack here. Um, as a young person, I kind of get needing a job, <laughs> and I kind of get needing to use connections to get this job. The two connections that I used personally to get this job are on this podcast with me right now. We all use hookups when they are available um, to to get where we want to go. Um, I think in coaching, there becomes a um, – I think it's very easy to – point fingers and connect nepotism. Um, Bud, I know you have seen this firsthand with Bobby Bowden and the Bowden sons. Um, I know you get that. Uh, Godfrey, you were around with with Terry. Uh, with Terry was at Auburn and all that stuff and at Samford and all that stuff. Um, but when it comes to kind of in this day and age, there's a couple things to unpack here. And I want to start with kind of the biggest deal here, and that is uh, Colorado State. Steve Adazio just hired his son, Louie, to be an offensive line coach and hired Corey Dennis, who is Urban Meyer's son-in-law, to be his quarterback coach. Um, so a lot of people were like, oh, you just hired your son and all that kind of stuff. I, I think with Steve, it's a touch different because 
Steve is an O-line coach who hired his son to coach the O-line. And what Steve values with that position group, and I think what any coach should really value with that position group if you're on the offensive side of the ball, is continuity. Because offensive line coach is a very technical coach because it's a very technical job. Steve himself will have quite a bit of hand, I would imagine, into the offensive line at Colorado State. Steve has entrusted guys that he, younger guys that he knows, pretty much at every stop with the offensive line. Uh, you know, at Boston College, Phil Troutwine and Justin Fry were offensive line coaches. Troutwine played for him at Florida. Uh, Justin Fry was a GA for him at Florida, I believe, uh, and a GA for him at Temple before being his, his offensive line coach at BC. So there's a couple things happening concurrently there, which is Steve wants familiarity with that position group. His son, who played for him at Boston College, coached tight ends at Bowling Green, and for a few years was a GA under Urban Meyer, has both the kind of grinded young coach track record of being in a couple places and having cut some teeth and 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 paid a little bit of dues, with also Steve himself wanting a little bit of control over how that sauce is made and uh, some familiarity and you know somebody's not going out to do their own thing. With that being said, when you talk to some of these younger guys, I want people to understand they know what you think of them. Like they, they, it, it is. I don't want to. I don't know if it's full on insecurity. I don't know if that's a, it's the right word, but these younger guys know that Twitter is saying they only have the job because of their dads. Um, you know, you talk to some of these young coaches, and some of them have intentionally. not worked for their dads in the beginning of their careers so that they could figure things out on their own so that they can get some other cultural and schematic influences um, with coaching and so that they can become something of their own men. Um, But like if you're close with your dad, you, there is something cool about working with your dad. If you have a cool relationship with your dad, um, So there's a lot in play here when we talk about this, and I just really found it such an interesting question because I kind of find the topic a little bit interesting to kind of dive into as someone who himself kind of, you know, doesn't really have that tight a relationship with my dad and could not have gone to work with my dad. Like, I don't I don't get it. I don't really understand, um, you know, the, the thought process that kind of goes into it. So that's why I find it interesting and kind of delved into it a little bit myself. And then the other kind of spoke off that is... There are some young minority coaches that will tell you, not necessarily they would love to go work for their dads, but there are some minority coaches that tell you uh, black head coaches don't pull minority coaches up in the same way that some older white coaches pull up um, some of the youngsters that they may have connections with or that they may have coached with their fathers. And that's kind of a point of um, kind of a headbutting point between young coaches. Young coaches of color and older coaches of color. Older coaches of color kind of want you to, so to speak, pay your dues in the way they did yeah. to get to their position. So that was a lot, but that's my answer to that question. Uh, for per that last point, I've heard that a lot actually, um, and it's it's sort of a fraught deal because the the numbers game being so lopsided in one direction, you would think that they would give them that benefit no matter what but at the same time it's it's a generational gap within a particular minority culture which is an extremely tough thing to parse if you're from the outside but but on the other hand gripe before right on the other hand it can cut kind of both ways like if you're a black coach you staff your your you know eight out of your 10 assistant coaches um are all black there are gonna be some 
things that may go against you on the field um, if you staff a coaching staff with your boys. Let's say your team is, air quotes, undisciplined and you've got a lot of black coaches on your staff. There are criticisms that are going to hit a different way if you're a white coach with a bunch of your guys versus a black coach with a bunch of your boys. But I just want to let you know that Richard did the following, not me, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, at CH Gunna, if the American 1 through 12 matched up with the ACC 2 through 13 at neutral sites, what would be the results? Hmm. This was all Richard. Hypothetically, how would this play out? Hypothetically. Hypothetically. All right. Hypothetically. So. So you made a chart. I did make a chart. chart. Neither of them have seen this chart, which is fun. Um, So basically what I did was I took um, Bill Connolly's uh, S&P and I basically said, all right, where does 2 through 13 in the ACC stack up? Where does... where does one through 12 or whatever in the AAC stack up? And I, I took those seeds one through 12 on each side and put them next to each other. And I created a point spread, so to speak. It's, it's quick and it's dirty, but it is a rough approximation of what a point spread would be if each of these two teams played in a game. That's how I create the vested interests every week. Um, so I will quickly run them down. All right, here we go. Miami and Memphis. Memphis would be favored by four and a half points, roughly. Wait, so we're not using Clemson? No, we are not using Clemson. Two through, two through. No, it's two through thirteen. Two but through we 13. are using the best team in, in the AAC. Yes, we are. Okay, got it. I'm right. going. I'm going by the letter of Clemson, the. I mean, not 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 to help on this rib here, but like Clemson is an exceptional, you know, outlier. Right. I'm I'm going through the letter of the law here. Are we also cutting off UConn? No, because okay, cool. I should have, and I will say this when I get there, I probably should have cut off UConn and probably would if I did this experiment again. Okay. I mean, if we're so, going to cherry pick it, let's cherry pick this thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, UCF and North Carolina would be the next matchup. Uh, UCF would be roughly six and a half point favorite. Virginia Tech would be roughly a three and a half point favorite against Navy. Cincinnati, roughly one point favorite against Virginia. Call that a pick em. Wake Forest. Four and a half point favorite, roughly over Temple. Tulane and Pitt, as well as Florida State and SMU, would be right around a pick'em, roughly approximating. Approximating. I know Bud's got the wheels turning, factoring yeah. injuries, coach, all that stuff. I'm not factoring in that stuff. This is rough, quick, and dirty. Louisville and these are neutral sites. Yes, these yeah. would be neutral sites. Uh, Louisville and Houston. Louisville would be roughly a six-point favorite against Houston. Duke would be roughly a four-point favorite against Tulsa. Syracuse would be roughly a a six-and-a-half-point favorite against USF. Boston College would be roughly a 12-point favorite over ECU, and we have gotten to the bottom. NC State would be roughly a 17-point favorite over UConn. That is, again, without factoring in injuries, coaching, leaving, all sort of stuff. I think what you see from this when you do this really quickly is that the top kind of half of the conference is roughly approximately in the same neighborhood the bottom not so much this is interesting those games would be really interesting they'd be better than some of the bulls that we have this season i thought the a- the acc would come out a lot worse than it did in this i did too yeah i did too um, and i think part of that is because some of these a some of these aac teams down the stretch, really kind of cratered, right? I mean, East Carolina never really improved this year. UConn, terrible. USF was just 
real pretty bad down the stretch. Um, you know, Houston second half of the year not as good as the first. I think that that had a lot to do with it. Um, right, you would probably have to. Fa- I mean, if we really, really did this a month ago, you this would factor is in stuff. Right, right. You would factor in a lot of what these teams look like right now. Who's injured? I mean, Houston, like the beginning of the season. Do we have De'Aaron King? Like, how much does that change stuff? It again, quick, dirty, rough approximation. It's interesting because people are going to say, "Well, of course, the ACC had a terrible year." But this wasn't the best year for the American. It wasn't like this was this wasn't the best year to even do this if you're the American because the depth isn't isn't really there. But as Bud alluded to earlier, um, yeah, that kind of went from controversial to actually just like, I don't know. I wish we could use one of these gimmicks to make the Bulls better. Like you rattled off three or four games in there. I'm like, oh, shit, that would be good. Oh, that would be good instead of the crap that we're getting in December. So that's nice. Um, all right. Let's skip ahead. Let's skip around. Um, let's stay in the American. J.E. Miklos. Bud, why was USF not able to close the gap of Florida, Florida State, Miami when they seem to have had the chance? I'd be curious when that was exactly. Um, can Scott lead them back to that conversation, or is it more on the administration? Richard and Bud, I'm going to let you guys just devour this because you both own it in very different ways. Bud, first crack, sir. I read this as UCF and did not read the second half of the question, so I was like, <laughs> okay. Uh, with USF, I'm not really sure the premise of like when did they actually have the chance to close that gap. They really haven't been. Good. I don't like either. So, but, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to take Miklos. Here's what I'm going to okay. do. I want you to answer as if it is UCF. I want I want Richard to explain why it can't be USF. How's okay. That? Sure. Um, okay. So recruits do not see UCF as a big time program. UCF has still not taken a single player that the Power Five schools in this state want. Sunshine Skate scorecard right. time, baby. Check it out. None last year, none this year. I, do they have any four stars this year? I, I don't. I don't think so. Um, they. Bottom line is, like, you have to be really, really good and consistent for a much longer period of time than your fan base thinks it, it does. If you want to get like legitimate traction with top level recruits, especially because you play in a league that is not a big time league. Now it's the big time of the G five, but it's not a big time league. That's kind of why they have not stepped up in recruiting to really challenge those really elite teams. They've done a great job of development, and I think they do a really good job there at UCF. Danny White, keeping them in the conversation with, with, with that parade thing was genius. Like, seriously, marketing-wise, awesome. But, yeah, they, they're not really taking that step because it takes so much longer than people think it does. Oh, and they need they need to they need to actually accept some of these two-for-one things where, where the, the one is a neutral site at Camping World Stadium. They're trying to they're trying to turn a twenty year process into a three year process. It's not. Possible. It's not going to happen. All right, Richard, explain USF. Um, this is, I teed this one up for you, bud. Um, if this was twelve years ago, uh, maybe we could have this conversation. Where it, can USF close the gap? But then again, we run into the things where twenty year process in three years, all that sort of stuff. Um, I think the the biggest thing to hit on right now is that when. When these teams, when, I'm talking about Florida, Florida State, and Miami, when they're not that good, they th- recruits think about this differently than you or I. What recruits see in this is a faded power that they know that they are good enough personally to come in, energize, and take back to glory, the glory that they know at least. Remember... Recruits, by and large, are 1% of 1% at their own high school. It's a little bit different in South Florida, but 
They're one percent or one percent in at Lake City at Columbia High School, for instance. If I'm good enough to take Columbia near state, then I should be good enough to bring Florida back. I am that good of a wide receiver. I'm the guy. Again, this is how these 17-year-olds think. Trust me. Um, Now, there are just institutional reasons why the gulf between USF, Florida, FSU, and Miami is the Mariana Trench. I mean, it's money. And that is as simple as I can say it. Um, USF has to have its house in order. Uh, Florida, Florida State, well, Florida and Miami, at least, have had, well, and Florida State, Florida, Florida State, Miami, as far as football infrastructure is needed from a monetary perspective, had at least a 30-year head start on USF. And that's being... That's that's being generous. That's being truncated. Um, remember, USF did not start playing football until 1997. At that point in time, Florida, Florida State, and Miami had been established powers for at least 30 years. Florida is itself the old money school in the state and has been around since, you know, 1850, so it says, but really 1900s. That's that's a North Florida deep cut. Um, but, yeah, I, I think when you really get down to it, it's institutional and it's money why the gap is so far um, between USF or UCF and the big three in the state. Um, I think when we talk about seeming to have a chance, what we're seeing is those two teams backslid for a little bit. But think about how how air quotes easy it is for a Florida, Florida State, or a Miami to trip its way into the playoff as opposed to USF, which – the playoff as presently constructed, I'm not going to say never, but damn near will never make it. As presently constructed, I would say never. I feel like that's that's totally there's there's no way those. Two I was trying to be play. nice. No, it, but to me, being nice, I think actually assists the bad guys here. You know, I think it feeds into that bullshit commercial you see where it's like 130 teams vying for one. No, no, it's not. It's like 60 odd or whatever it is. It's not. Group of five can't do it, which is, you know, if it's four teams, I, I can even understand that, I guess. But just don't lie. My issue's always been with the lie. At John Ed, ask, at, sorry, at John underscore Ed, several G5s are promoting from within instead of getting caught up in the, quote, the stepping stone cycle, uh, a la Arkansas State. Will this be more of a trend moving forward for top tier G5 teams? I don't know, John, if it'll be more of a trend, but the one that I think of immediately is App State. Obviously, Eli was there for one year, moved on to Missouri. He was a outsider, and I use outsider because that's how it was described to me. Um, App State is a is a pretty tight knit coaching and football culture because you had Scott Satterfield there for a really really long time and helping guiding them guiding them from. Um, from FCS to FBS, and then you had a guy come in who wasn't part of that culture, and he was one and done. So I had a lot of people, when that job opened and when Eli started getting heat, for, especially from SEC schools and ultimately Missouri, I had people say, like, oh, well, you know, so-and-so would love to go to App. And it was an established, like, either a head coach who had been fired, kind of like a Willie Taggart situation going to FAU. I had people of that caliber being mentioned to me for that job, and then I, in the same breath, I had a lot of people in athletics saying, you know what, I bet you App stops that cycle before it starts, specifically because of the Arkansas State example of um, 
Blake Anderson's been there for a minute now, but it was in succession one-year spots from Hugh Freeze, Gus Malzahn, and Brian Harson. I think they made the right move. I really do. I, th- I think what makes App successful right now is something that Sean Clark understands and, and can achieve. I think they were exceptionally great on offense because Eli's an offensive mind, but I don't think they're going to be losing a lot. I think it was a very smart move. And Clark, um, having been on Satterfield staff, I think it, it's, a, it's a tremendous help. So is it going to be a trend? I don't know. Um, but I will say this, not relative to G5s, just in general, interim becoming a permanent head coach, um, it's really good for early signing. It is. Um, I, in some ways, I'm kind of like, all right, wh- what is the goal here? Is the goal continuity for the, for the long term? If so, you can achieve that. But can you actually marry that continuity potential with winning? And I, I, I don't know that promoting from within uh, doesn't undercut your chance of staying where you are in terms of wins. There's a reason why your coaches are getting plucked. It's because your team is winning. I mean, it. Some of these opening press conferences I watched, the guys were like, hey, this, this is not a stepping stone job to me. I, I want to be here 20 years. And I'm like, all right, but <laughs> are you, are you going to produce results that they want you here for 20 years? Are you going to produce results that nobody else would want to hire you away? I, I, I'm not saying promoting from within is a bad thing. I, I think I actually think Silverfield from Memphis makes a whole lot of sense. They, they love him there, and, and he's a really sharp guy from all accounts. He's a really sharp dude. Yeah, Norvell wanted him badly to to be the offensive yeah, line coach. I met him at convention. I met him at convention a couple of years ago and was really really impressed at the time. And Nor- they had just gotten to Memphis. Um, I think he'll do really well there. And his NFL background pays off in the right way. Um, I think he's really good with the kids. Absolutely. Um, two technical, uh, two two X and O questions that are sort of kissing cousins to one another to the point where I might read them together, Richard, and you can kind of play with them at Tukey Monster. Uh, with all the Wildcat slash read options slash jet sweep Wisconsin was running Saturday, I assume he means in the conference championships. Um, would you consider that, quote-unquote, flirting with running a modern triple option at the Power 5 level? Now, in the same breath, Richard, I would also have a question regarding Army-Navy from at IMFB underscore blog. Did Kenny and Munkin run so much shotgun in Army-Navy to try and win... Or to prove to the doubters that they can adapt. Um, a little bit of context here. As we entered that game in the three days prior, I heard that both Munkin and uh, Niamatololo were in consideration for the Boston College job, which obviously went uh, to Ohio State's defensive coordinator, um, Halfley. Uh, Richard, you know, I think about Willie Fritz and I think about moving to Will Hall, and it still didn't even help him. I do think there's a perception issue with these guys. I think that if you and I walked into either one of those offensive meeting rooms, they would probably laugh at us if we said that they picked play specifically to be audition pieces because winning that game matters so damn much that they probably ran what the whatever the best thing was to win the game, right? Yeah, I mean, and you can say more than anybody, I think the poison pills that each will leave throughout the season in game tape for the other to see. Um, yeah. And for the other two, maybe needlessly game plan for and kind of forget about a little bit edgewise their bread and butter. Um, so I, I'm not sure that motion is an option influence on the game so much as it's just like smart offense. Like motion is all about screwing up eye discipline. Now, 
If you're a team that really utilizes motion, the one thing that you have to know is that you have to pay that motion off. All that window dressing and stuff, at some point, you have to hand one of those jet sweepers the ball or you're screwed because teams are going to know that, well, when they motion, they don't actually give them the ball. So the motion does have to have a point. It's not just doing it to do it. Um, How often do you have to do it to make to, to keep people on? I'm not sure you have to do it a ton. I'm not sure it has to be a staple of the motion. But you have to show it enough to, on, to, to, to have it be honored. You have to show it enough to make defenders think at the snap for one split second. Because if they see it and they can disregard it, well, now you're playing 11 against 10 or 11 against 9 if your quarterback's not um, not himself a runner. So there, think about that. At, like I'm talking to two coaches here. Consider that when you're watching, I should say, maybe. Um, did Kenny and Munkin do that to appeal? I, I doubt it. I, I think they're doing it because they themselves may know that they need to adapt. So maybe a little bit. Maybe you remember the thing with, uh, with uh, oh, goodness, um, Arizona. With Khalil Tate, who was like, "I don't want to run the option or whatever," the tweet, right, right, um, the quote tweet that he tweeted that 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 uh, Neil Batalolo may be um, maybe rumored for that job at that time. Now, I am not so sure Neil Batalolo is going to keep running the option, option, option no. at his next stop. I don't know if Monk would either. Um, but Monk. the other thing here is. And I was having this conversation. We were having this conversation with our friends at Against All Enemies, um, and I think we we talked about it on their podcast. But how much of the, how much is the option itself? And when I'm talking option, I'm talking like flex bone stuff. How much is that harmed by a Paul Johnson who had kind of a uh, spiritual aversion to recruiting at the highest levels of the sport, and Navy and Army who have literal height weight requirements on their players, like? How much is the fact that that scheme is married to those programs, um, how much does that hurt the option in general with a capital O? Because, folks, the zone read is the option. Counter read that Jalen Hurts run, runs is the option. Uh, midline, dun, dun, stuff, dun. midline stuff that Oregon ran with Marcus Mariota where he's reading a defensive tackle or alignment, that is the option. It is all the option. Yeah. RPOs is the new school option. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess that's kind of the answer to the question there. Uh, and and then as far as Wisconsin, they're, they're moving to the triple. We can confirm this. Yes, Wisconsin moving to the triple. How badass would that be? Oh, my God. Seriously, if you had to, if you had to take a P5 team and run the triple right now, it's Wisconsin, isn't it? Yeah, it just might be. Throw that thing in flex mode. And- I mean, legitimate question here. If you if if you're doing it, and I'm not talking about out of necessity, because Bud always says like, and you're right, about <laughs> things, you know, you're, you're you're giving up something or you're signaling something. I'm saying if you had to like with personnel and style right now, like, wouldn't Wisconsin be perfect for the triple? No, like, no, I think Wisconsin is kind of giving up some of its edge talent. And Wisconsin's got some edge talent at wide receiver. Wisconsin's quarterbacks are also. Maybe not the guys you want running the option, right? Okay, so you get you get in the transfer portal. You can fix that pretty quickly. I think I would take Georgia Tech because oh, they've done wow. it pretty recently. Singer. And they, they don't have they can't uh, throw. What about what about Kansas State? It could play. 
could play because look, you you may be getting some JUCO guys or some D three guys or some D two guys that you're trying to kind of uh, move blood right. from stones with. And like we've talked about, Kleiman, Kleiman himself kind of knows that um, knows the ins and outs of that system, having coached against it quite a bit. Uh, long time PAPN listener, long time PAPN listener, Shikar Gupta. Uh, it's Shikar Gupta ninety four. Uh, considering that USC is recruiting last year and this year, how far back will USC be set after a bunch of current players leave post-2020? Assume that Helton is retained until 2021 at minimum, perhaps through 2022. Will Oregon's rise make it difficult for USC to recover? So, But I think what he's asking for, and Chikar's a USC fan, um, is sort of a doomsday scenario if they keep going down this path. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think one class will kill them. Uh, but certainly you have to figure that if they have to fire him uh, next year, they're going to have a transition class in the early signing period era, which we know is uh, very difficult to achieve great results on. Uh, so you'll have this class backed up by, let's assume Hilton gets fired after this year or after next year, which is possible. Um, it will make it tough to topple Oregon in the uh, in the near term. Now, we'll see about Oregon sustaining you know super high-level results uh, in, in the long term. We don't know how Jimmy Lake will do at Washington. Now, some people think they're going to be better under Jimmy Lake than they were under Chris Peterson. I, again, Chris Peterson is really, really proven, so I'm, I'm going to kind of be doubtful on that initially. Uh, but, I mean, there are also questions about Oregon's coaching, right? And they just lost their DC to, uh, uh, or their OC, I'm sorry, to, uh, to UNLV. So I think it could set USC back if they don't close well. But they're also making some noise this week in terms of closing stronger. I don't think they'll finish 83rd in the nation. So I think what his concern here is if, if Helton's around a couple more years and then they do the transition year, we're seeing diminishing returns to a degree in his recruiting. And so it would have – like all signs point to getting worse, I guess is kind of what he's, he's asking. Right. I, I just – the premise here that they keep him through 2021 and, and into 2022 – what kind of results is he – it seems very incompatible to me that he could actually continue to recruit poorly as they're doing this year and then get good enough results to stay around for th- two or three more seasons? Like, what What does that look like? If twenty, if they're, if he's the coach 2021, they probably went to the Rose Bowl, right? Right. And, they, and their recruiting didn't suck if they went back to the Rose Bowl. Would anyone like to know what the 2020 schedule is? I would love to. They open with Bama in Houston, right? Wait, 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 Jesus wait, wait. Christ. First off, what's your floor? What's your floor? For them? You're, you are now the athletic director at USC. Immediately, what is your floor for their performance in 2020 before you fire the staff? Probably 8-4. Well, no, 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 7-5. keep 7-5 because they play Alabama. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're keeping him at 8-4 and four next year? Oh no! I think that's the absolute worst you can do. Like I, th- yeah, I think maybe you keep him at eight and four. I think maybe you keep him at eight and four because wow. because you have a an automatic loss damn near with Alabama. I think maybe you're you're writing that off and say, what did we do in the Pac-12? Bud, what's your floor? So it seems like maybe USC doesn't have the kind of money we think they do. Right? There were some rumblings about that when they were going after uh, after Franklin that maybe they didn't have the kind of cash that we think they do, but. If they have right. the cash to actually go out and make a splash, which now I have my doubts, uh, then, then I, I think my floor is nine and three. I think my floor is you have to win nine. You have to win your division. 
and you have to like at worst compete to go to the Rose Bowl and go to the conference championship game in Vegas. So, without further ado, conference games are still to be determined because the Pac-12 doesn't understand that in some places in America we look at college football schedules five years out. Um, their non-conference games are against Alabama at AT&T in Arlington to open the season. Good God. New Mexico, that's a win, and Notre Dame. So you got that going for you. Then you and are on the road. Yeah. Uh, these are just the road games, and then I'll read you the, uh, the home sure. games. The road games, Arizona, Oregon, Stanford, UCLA, and Utah. The home games, Arizona State, Cal, Colorado, Washington. I don't see nine and three, y'all. I'm surprised they kept him this year. Yikes. Right? So <laughs> this is the context that I was trying to create here. You're trying to establish some sort of consistency or goodwill or something. I don't know if you're Mike Bond, the, the new athletic director, that you've given him anything other than a bigger stage to fail on, especially with Alabama coming in and smacking the shit out of you in week one. No, hey. If they catch, by virtue of the schedule, bud, if they catch Alabama – and like Oregon, in both in September, it's going to be pretty humiliating. Yeah, although I might want to get Oregon early. I also think okay. because you talk about Herbert, because mm-hmm. of them new quarterback. The quarterback? Yeah. I have no idea who's going to be their quarterback. I also have this with Oregon. Oregon is Oregon's Oregon under uh, uh, under Mario is trying to do something it did not do under Chip, which is aggressively out recruit. USC in Southern California. Am I right there, bud? Yeah. I mean, Kayvon Thibodeau's from Los Angeles. Exactly. Um, that's not exactly something that under Chip they were trying to do. Under Chip, Chip was kind of um, Chip was kind of ready, willing, and able to try to blood from stones it a little bit. Um, uh, what's up, snacks? Um, yeah, we had a we had a podcast. Ain't toddlered nobody. Um, yeah, Oregon, Oregon under Chip was trying to do something that um, recruiting-wise, wow, I'm completely thrown right now, that necessarily Oregon under Mario may not have been trying to do. Try and live with them. Um, last question, because they're literally beating down my door. We are ending. For those of you listening to this as you drive home from the holidays, I hope everything was great. We did all of these back-to-back-to-back, to back to back, <laughs> so we're a little punchy at the moment. Um, I, Bud picked this one out. We're going to end with this. At Napalm Radio, what's the silliest, silly season rumor you have ever come across? And I'm talking straight nonsense. But I feel like with your years as steward of Tomahawk Nation, you might have some good ones. We, we definitely had some good ones this year. Uh, Ingram and I on Nolcast actually drafted our favorite Bob Stoops rumor after we told him, hey, the Bob Stoops stuff is dead. Uh, my favorite is that Bob Stoops, who we actually found out through some reportage, is only making a million bucks per year on his XFL deal was sticking around with the Dallas Renegades to conduct their draft so he could hit a contractual bonus instead of going to Florida State where he would probably make like 8 or $9 million a year. I'm like, what is the size of the bonus on a contract for a million that you're getting credit for? But then but then we found out that the draft had already happened. So he, the message boarders who were really on this shit uh, were, they had him sticking around for a draft that had happened a month earlier. And that was the reason he was not I'm, coming. I'm racking, I'm racking my brain right now for my, my entry here. I've, I mean, I've just heard so many over the years where, I mean, I'm just going to be really rude for a second. Anything that's tweeted from like a talk radio account, I mean, the, the but what, what percentage, what's the completion percentage on, on like uh, 
the the tweet from the radio show that says like sources. I mean, it's always wrong. It's always baseless. It's always bullshit. It's um, so bad. Yeah. There was a point in my career where like like Rick like like my favorite is always the really really retired coach who's trying to float himself back in like a like a new Heisel or a nut or somebody like that and you would see it pop up on talk radio. So, it was a lot of like Houston Nut under consideration at South Florida, for instance, and you're thinking like well, I just talked to those people, and that's that can't be true at all. So um, then that bleeds into the to the message board. Oh, I got my favorite. This is real. This lived on a message board for years. Brett Favre, offensive coordinator, Mississippi State. Hell yeah, brother! Not Southern Miss. He had a nephew that played quarterback briefly at Mississippi State, and so he was going to OC at Mississippi State. So I, I'll call that one as my favorite. Um, I'm going to take any triumvirate of um, Bob Stoops, Steve Spurrier, or Mike Shanahan uh, becoming Florida's next head coach at pick whatever vacant Florida job, whenever the Florida job was vacant. Any of the triumvirate there. Yeah. I like it. All right, gentlemen, uh, as you're listening to this again, we uh, we hope you had a lovely holiday. We will see you guys back on the normal schedule during New Year's. I heard that, by the way. I heard that. Heard what? I, he, got, he said what? Gruden, Tennessee. <laughs> he snuck oh, that in the there. Cam. But that's the easiest one. That's the, like, yeah, he snuck I, that I one in there. About that one because it's, it's, I think it's like it became a meme, and then it became like a tired parent meme, so you don't use it anymore. But, yes, John Gruden, Tennessee, obviously. Um Okay, quick programming note. New Year's week, I will be joined by, unfortunately, shut down full cast co-host and also noted Banner Society, I don't know, lawyer, Ryan Nanny. Uh, He will be co-hosting the post-playoff show with me, uh, and then I believe one other, and then our regular rotation will be back in the new year. We thank you for listening as we had a very, very... um, a very big year, a very different year in 2019 for PAPN. So thank you all. Um, gentlemen, anything left to say as we end our marathon recording session? Happy New Year. See you all. Happy New Year.